0: Welcome to episode 26 of the Political Mike podcast. The nation has inaugurated its 46th president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden, the oldest man to take the office at age 78. He faces multiple crises at once, a raging uh, pandemic, uh, systemic uh, racism that has uh, culminated in national rights, uh, in addition to a, 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 an era of conspiracies um, that has manifested itself in the recent Uh, riot and siege of the Capitol that took place uh, two weeks ago on January the 6th. In addition, uh, Kamala uh, D. Harris has made history, uh, now the first woman in American history to take a national position, alum of Howard University uh, and the junior senator of California. She will now play a major role not only because of her uh, historic role as the first uh, African American uh, and first uh, person of Asian descent to take the position of vice president, but also because of the 50-50 Senate uh, that we will now have and her role as the tiebreaker. In addition, uh, President Biden has issued a a slew of executive orders already trying to uh, undo the previous administration's actions, uh, ranging from topics to immigration, um, and specifically, and more importantly, right now, the pandemic that has taken the lives of over 400,000 Americans. Here to help me break it all down is a very dynamic, insightful uh, panel. I'm so excited to have them. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and introduce uh, first Mr. Omari Allen. Omari Allen is a third year Juris Doctorate candidate at Howard University School of Law. Since attending Howard Law, Omari has focused on developing a career in litigation. Most recently, he worked as a summer legal intern at National Resources Defense Council for their litigation team at the Los Angeles office. Prior to that experience, Omari was a spring associate at the federal appellate and U.S. Supreme Court litigation firm Gupta Wessler in their Washington, D.C. office. In the summer of his first year, Omari worked as a judicial intern for the honorary Marsha Berzin at the the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco. He's a senior staff editor for uh, Howard University School of Law's Human and Civil Rights Law Review. In spring of 2017, he received two bachelors of arts degrees, one in political science and the other in French um, at Pepperdine University. During his tenure at Pepperdine, Omari uh, held several leadership roles and heavily focused on creating more diverse and inclusive spaces on the campus. He, along with six other young men, charted the first chapter of a a historically Black fraternity at Pepperdine, and he served as the the chapter's uh, chartering president. In his sophomore year, Omari also interned at the White House during the Obama administration and later worked for then California Attorney General Kamala Harris um, for her U.S. Senate campaign in 2016. After graduating college, Omari took a gap year to work as a community organizer in the gun violence prevention movement, and that time he worked with survivors of gun violence across the country, including many of the students from Majorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Uh, Omari also organized a nationwide coalition of young BIPOC uh, student activists. Omari, such a pleasure, such an honor to have you back, uh, to have you for the first time on the political mic, sir. I'm so excited to see what you're gonna bring uh, to the table at such um, a dynamic point in American history. Next, we have Cicely Jarvis. Cicely is an educator and a recent graduate of the illustrious Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama. She's from the greater the greatest city in the world, according to the play Hamilton, New York City. In her free time, she's advocating, creating, and learning about new ways to help her community. Cicely aspires to be a public policymaker and lawyer in the near future. Cicely, so glad to have you. Um, Excited to see what you're gonna bring to the table, especially as a history uh, teacher. Um, So we're at a moment of intense history right now, and it's only fitting that we have an educator on the panel tonight. Next, we have back with us uh, Anthony Mitchell, Anthony hails from the home of Crawfish Boils, Jazz Music, King Cake, and world-famous Cafe uh, Dumont, New Orleans, Louisiana. As a former assistant executive director of the eastern region of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, Incorporated, Anthony oversaw over 200 chapters throughout the east coast of the United States, South Africa, United Kingdom, Germany, and Asia. Shortly thereafter, Anthony spent time in England, France, Germany, and Amsterdam learning about similarities between these countries social and political imbalances in relation to the United States. After traveling abroad, working for local government and now spending time at the nation's capital, Anthony became encouraged to pursue his desire to shape policy to address the inequalities in our country currently. He serves as the executive office of mayor he serves in the executive office of mayor B- Muriel Bowser in Washington DC. Uh, previously, he served as a legislative assistant for Congressman David Scott of Georgia's 13th District, where he advised Congressman Scott um, and ed- enacted policies related to health care, education, uh, the judiciary, civil rights, and more. Additionally, Anthony has also firmly served as the Director of Health Policy and Legislative Strategy for the Joint Congressional Staff Task Force on Racial Justice and Reform. Um, he's uh, he held many positions. Uh, when I met him, he's actually an intern for Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania. Anthony, it's always a pleasure to have you back on the political mic. Excited to see what your insight is gonna also bring to the table, sir. And next we have Jasmine Bonner, who was born and raised in the gateway to the West, St. Louis, Missouri. Upon graduation from one of the, from one of two historically black colleges and universities in Missouri, Harris Stowe State University, Jasmine moved to Washington DC to pursue a career serving the people, of her hometown as a congressional intern for former Congressman William Lacy Clay Jr. Uh, after the completion of her internship, Jasmine became the staff assistant for Congressman Gerald Nadler. Um, yeah, Gerald Nadler of New York's 10th district, uh, chairman of the House Committee on the Judiciary, who also played a, a major role in the first impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. Currently, Jasmine serves as a special assistant for United States Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. Uh, by serving in these two roles. Over the last three years, Jasmine witnessed essential hearings that laid the foundation for the case of the impeachment of President Donald Trump. She also is one of the very uh, few personal staffers to be presented on the Senate floor during the trial of the former president. And as a result, Jasmine had the unique opportunity to see firsthand the entire impeachment process from inception to reality. In addition to her time spent as a staffer in both the House and Senate, she also serves as the vice president for the Senate Black Legislative Staff Caucus, a 2020 to 2021 scholar for the American University Women in Politics We Lead program and a steadfast advocate for the success of HBCUs, their students, faculty, and staff. Very accomplished resume, uh, very impressive. And with all those credentials, it's not hard to see why she's on the panel tonight. Um, So happy to have you, Jasmine. Thanks for being a part of this. And last, but certainly not least at all, uh, Miss Camilla Ahmad. Camilla is the former director of campus programs and regional poli- uh, political director for Doug Jones, uh, the senator, former senator of Alabama for U.S. Senate. Uh, Kamala, uh, I'm sorry. Camila K- Ahmad is a social worker, visual artist, and political activist from S- San Francisco, California. She's also a graduate of Oakland University, uh, class of 2017. She has a background in social work with field experience in medical social work human rights advocacy, crisis services, and child welfare. She serves as an elected member of the Alabama Democratic Party's executive board and is currently working as a campaign consultant and pursuing a master's in public administration with a concentration in public policy. Amazing panel. Uh, But let's dive into it, panel. Let's get into this right now. uh, President Biden has already been very busy in his first full day uh, in office. And in fact, you can even go back to yesterday. He was actually very busy after he was sworn in. Um, and so when we're looking at the executive orders that we're seeing, we see that he signed an executive order ap- appointing Jeffrey D. Uh, Zeitz, who was the Obama administration's National Economic Council uh, head, as the official COVID 19 response coordinator. And all of this is part of his campaign effort to a- attack this virus more aggressively. Um, we've also seen that he's going to be ins- uh, instituting uh, a mask mandate on federal uh, properties. Um, and of course, we know that a national mask mandate would uh, run into some legal challenges, but we've, we see that something is being done. Uh, just today, uh, Dr. Fauci is taken to the podium, uh, which hasn't been in use for so long, the, the White House press briefing room. And he expressed that it's so liberating to be able to just be able to speak about what the science says about where we are in combating this virus uh, without having to be muzzled uh, because of the political backlash he might receive. So I want to get your thoughts, panelists. Um, That's just one executive order. Of course, there's another executive order uh, aimed at uh, reversing the Trump immigration's policy um, that was very inhumane um, towards uh, folks at the southern border, uh, separating children from their parents uh, with no means of reuniting them at all, Um, and also reversing the Muslim ban that was enacted in 2017 when uh, Donald Trump made good on his promise to enact a total and complete shutdown of all Muslims entering the United States. I want to get your thoughts, panelists, on these executive orders so far, what they mean uh, in terms of how they set the tone for the next four years, um, especially because we're at a 50-50 Senate. Um, It looks like this is the time of the moderate. I had Mr. Uh, Jeff Jeff Greenfield uh, on last week, senior analyst for ABC, CBS, uh, CNN, um, very insightful political analyst. And he said, folks like Joe Manchin, um, Susan Collins, Murkowski, those are the, those are going to be the power players uh, in these two years. I want to get your thoughts on,
1: you know, how these executive orders set the tone. And anyone can jump in.
2: Um, I'll go ahead. Uh, Mike, first of all, thank you for having me um, my first time. So I definitely appreciate you um, extending the invite. Um, to just be completely honest, I think um, going in day one um, with business on the mind, like on your mind, was the, the best thing that him and his administration could do. Um, we see the constant, the high numbers of people dying from COVID, right? Um, and they, like, states need help. Um, one of the things that they talked about constantly on CNN yesterday and today how they entered how the Biden administration entered um into office and found no type of blueprint or plan for um how like the, the rollout of the vaccination was so essentially they just gave states vaccines without any blueprints without any type of plans to direct them on how to do that um so them coming in with that on their mind was like the best thing that they could have do they could do um to get um the country you know healing from this um this horrible, um, crisis. Um, and hopefully they can even give some of these states, uh, states with the higher numbers, some guidance on how they could be doing more testing, right? Uh, we live here in DC and they're doing testing everywhere in DC and it's free, right? Um, I recently went home last year, um, around in November and I literally had to go to an urgent care and present insurance to get, uh, tested for COVID which for a lot of people, they don't have insurance. So what do you do for those brown people that don't have insurance, that are you know, on the the, the worst end of this virus and this pandemic? Um, so I think that's what some of the things that they're gonna have to continuously roll out and think about as they're um, uh, signing all of these executive orders, so.
1: Yeah, if I could just add one thing there, uh, I think, uh, one of the most important things is all of this is commonsensical and it, and it falls in lines with the science, right? When you think about um, the executive orders about mask mandates on planes, trains, and buses, right? That's a no-brainer that you need to have a mask when you're in a public hub like an airport or a Greyhound bus station where a lot of people frequent and usually may not be the cleanest, right? So you want to make sure that you have people being protected when they're around a lot of other folks, especially in a tight vacuum-sealed place like a train or a bus, or a plane. But going deeper than that and looking at folks that are outside of our country, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, President Biden, he's extended the number of countries that are, you know, on the ban, but also he has made it a mandate for folks that are coming into the country to test negative for the coronavirus. So if you test positive, you won't be able to come into the U.S. And then uh, we saw earlier also that the CDC shortened the the quarantine gap from 14 uh, 14 days to 10 days you know things like that are commonsensical to make sure that we're managing the spread managing where people and how people are moving
0: and we see that he's also making moves
3: on climate change omari yeah so I actually was going to get into that one I think obviously the the pandemic and all of the 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 um, uh, executive orders re- regarding the pandemic are high of high importance, highly critical, because um, that's an immediate need right now. But I would also like to add in the, the executive orders to the climate change, as well as some of the immigration um, reform executive orders, I think, are of also great importance just because of the vulnerable communities that they're going to affect. I mean, the, with us coming back into the U.S., coming back into the Paris uh, climate agreement, I think that's going to be huge implications that a lot of people don't fully understand, um, kind of what our withdrawal from that agreement um, implicated for us and for the environment and and, and climate movement. Um, But then the other uh, executive order that really kind of stuck with me was the change to include back into the census, the undocumented citizens or undocumented residents within the country, because um, that is critical information that should have never left, um, as well as obviously stopping the construction um, for the border wall that never existed. So,
0: And I, and I just want to, you know, thank you for that, because I want to reemphasize how difficult It was, remember when uh, President Obama and at the time Secretary of State John Kerry uh, were trying to negotiate getting into the Paris Climate Accord. And what does this mean? You're talking about carbon emissions uh, that were supposed to uh, be reduced significantly by the year 2025. Right now, that's only four years away. Um, And so we're behind the eight ball in that because we've been out of the the picture in in terms of national leadership on on climate climate change, um, will... Mike, I'm wondering if will the uh, the goalposts be moved a little bit more, being that we were out of the game for a little bit. Um, But in addition to that, you know, the deferred action for tribal childhood arrivals program was bolstered. I remember when Anthony, Jasmine, and I, when we were working on Capitol Hill with the CBCF, I think at least for me, the first day was January 23rd, which was still the government shutdown. And the shutdown at the time, in 2018, was all about immigration. And we thought that you know Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, there was you know, reports that they were coming into the White House and they were coming out saying Trump has a soft spot for the kids, um, for these immigrant kids who are coming over. Now, of course, we have not seen any concrete anything, you know, legislation. In fact, we've saw the opposite. We've seen um, inhumane policies um, from the Trump administration. But in terms of low hanging fruit, um, in terms of, you know, what to get done for these next two years, because I'm hearing from both the left and the right, I'm hearing from the left, you know, we need to go in there with a FDR 1933 style let's let's get as much as we can done in these next two years that I'm hearing on the right, you know, slow down. We want to get, you know on initiatives that we can agree with first. Let's talk about maybe gun control a little bit. Uh, let's talk about immigration. Let's not get too crazy here. Um, I'm wondering if these executive actions strike more of a liberal chord uh, than a moderate court in your opinion.
4: Um,
5: I'll I'll go ahead and kind of jump in. Um, this is kind of like a, an answer, I think, to touching on both of your questions. Um, but I think there are, after the last four years that we faced, right, and then after the last year that we faced especially, I think that we have to remember that as a collective society, we have faced a serious set of traumas, right? Like, In addition to what is already difficult through life, like, you know, we all have to work to live. We all have to figure out how we're gonna pay for our healthcare, whether that be through our jobs or by, you know, whatever other means. Um, Then on top of that, we have this this virus that is just completely wreaked havoc, really. Um, Here in this country, this did not feel like it was something that we had control of um, over or something that we would find control over any time in the near future. Um, And then people are facing things like job loss, eviction, You know, people are still unfortunately passing from the things they already were before we knew about coronavirus, right? And so I think that um, I didn't expect first day, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't expect first day to feel as much hope as I did. I think like many Americans, I was feeling very cautious, right, like put your money where your mouth is, I'm gonna wait to get excited until after y'all do something. Um, But I think that just the the symbol alone of, of Biden being there and signing those executive orders, I think so many of us have been waiting for action, not partisan action, not there are clear things that are affecting all of us. Right. We all need to figure out how to get how to how to get control of coronavirus. We all need to make sure that our neighbors are healthy, that people are safe, that we still have access to the American dreams through our jobs, through our, you know, all these sort of things um, are, are just public safety issues, right? Like basic uh, human needs sort of issues um, that that I think everyone's been just kind of like waiting at the edge of their seat and quite frankly, um, exhausted with how long we've had to wait for something as simple um, as, as the system that we pay into having our back when things hit the fan, right? And so um, I think that that first day having him sign those executive orders, having him talk he spoke all throughout his campaign about wanting to restore the soul of america wanting to restore our sort of hope in and 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 trust in the system um, and I think that a lot of us, and rightfully so, we're losing that sort of faith. And so I think that um, I think that people have been so so ready just for action. And so seeing on that first day, seeing those executive orders, there are lots of things that are just not partisan issues. I know we're confused almost with how like with the, how we polarized politics, right? Suddenly things that are just like, hey, do I deserve food and water? Is like a Republican or a Democrat issue? Like no, you know, you have the right to. And so these are things, issues that are going to affect all of us that, that everyone deserves, right? That we should be expecting out of the government that is, that is, you know, here to make sure that, that we have basic things like public safety. And so I personally am just excited to see, um, not necessarily like, what do I want as a liberal? What do, um, you know, whoever want as a, as a conservative, but what do we need as human beings? So I'm excited to be in a space again, where, um, we're just thinking about people's humanity. And so, like I said, I was cautious, but I like I like that we're hitting the ground running because I think that that's what people have needed, just the restoration of, of hope that maybe not all is lost.
4: I just wanna piggyback on what Camilla just said. Um, as a teacher um, and um, our first lady, Dr. Biden as well, I think there's a focus also as well as trying to get our kids back into school. Um, I know some of them do really good online and some of them are just in the classroom students. And it's just kind of refreshing to see if there's now a plan to, you know, go back into the school building as may cautious as we may be. But it's nice to see that our kids are now back on the front line and cared about as well. Just want to point that out too.
0: And 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 what makes this so different is that for one, you know, we had our first press briefing last night. Uh, and Jen Psaki, who's going to be the press secretary for President Biden, um, had, you know, told the the members of the press, we're not going to agree on everything. Uh, there are going to be times when uh, I would want to, you know, present one thing, and you're going to try to pull me in the other direction. But what's great about the way this works is that we can respect each other's roles going forward and have this mutual respect. And in so many ways, what we saw with the inauguration, I think it was more than just you know. Usually, the inauguration is a day of symbols. Um, it's a day of you know tra- celebrating the peaceful transition of power that we you know so often hear of. Uh, but yesterday had a whole different meeting. It was it was almost as if this was a reminder uh, to the country of what is normal, what is acceptable uh, in terms of uh, you know relations with the government. Remember the the presses usually called the fourth estate, the, the fourth branch of government. Um, and so for Jen Saki to now come into this press room, which let me point out again, wasn't in use for so long. <laughs> and when it was in use, it was used in a combative way. Um, regardless of what your politics are, you knew that this was a toxic environment. Um, and so it's just such a different uh, stark, stark contrast that I think you, you, you really haven't seen in American history. Um, but I kind of want to pivot a little bit uh, to the, the former president, uh, he left around, I believe, eight thirteen eight fourteen in the morning, on Marine One, and headed off to uh, Florida. Uh, he gave a speech that was interesting. Usually, you know, the presidents who are departing give a speech at a Joint uh, Andrews Joint uh, Air Force Base, and at the speech, he, in the speech, he had mentioned, you know, it was kind of like a campaign speech almost, uh, what Trump's campaign speeches are usually like. He touted himself on uh, the economy. He said he built it twice. Um, I had Professor Sherman Rogers on of Howard University School of Law. He begs to differ, but you know he kind of went into um, you know just the accomplishments, and um, he said, "If your taxes go up, remember I told you so." And I was just thinking, you know, this is a very you know to be blunt, tacky way of of leaving, uh, because usually, remember, from President Obama left, he spoke about democracy, he spoke about the 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 role of a citizen specifically. And democracy. Um, president Bush adno- acknowledged that you know he, he, his his friends and his enemies uh, may not always you know seem to have his best interests at heart all the time, especially his enemies. But he stayed true to who he was, and he can go back to Texas proud of remaining the same George W. Bush he came in 2001. Um, so I think there was another missed opportunity. Um, I don't think, and I said this before on this platform, I don't think he's going to be president again. Specifically, because Mitch McConnell looks like he's going to be more likely than not voting for conviction. Um, why else would he acknowledge the fact that he's waiting to hear the evidence? You remember this was a stark contrast from the first time, the first impeachment. And Jasmine, you were, you know, in the front row. You know that this was very different—a very different Mitch McConnell. And I think that the thing is, the Democrats now have control, right? A very slim control, but they have control, and so. The Republicans now have this new liberty, at least their moderate ones, John Thune of South Dakota, Mitch McConnell, um, Markowski, Susan Collins. Uh, The Republicans that were pulling their hair out for these past four years have an opportunity to now put Trump away for good uh, without them getting much of the blame for it, uh, because the Senate is not in their control anymore. I'm wondering if you feel the same way. Anyone can jump in.
2: Um... (laughs) So there's a lot to unpack there. And first, let me start by saying, um, everything he did yesterday—not attending the, uh, the inauguration, not um, even conceding—you know, the, the entire process, right. just toting all of those lies after he lost the election—was tacky. Let's just be real; it was it was incredibly tacky, and it was incredibly embarrassing. Um, and everything that we saw from then. Even what happened in the Capitol on January 6th um, till yesterday is it, just he's a sore loser. And our country has had to witness that and other countries around the world have witnessed that. And, you know, coming from the Midwest, you know, a lot of us have more, you know, um, conservative values. And I have two um, Republican senators um, that represent my um, home state but they are well roy blunt is more willing to work with democrats especially moderate democrats to get legislation pushed through we are looking at a completely different republican party um than we saw four years ago um you know and now they are in dealing with infighting you know four years ago they were talking about the democrats and how the democrats are dealing with all this infighting with the new and the old the, the Republicans are dealing with that right now. You have the uh, Republican leadership in the House that are, you know, upset. People are tired. They are sick of the rhetoric. They are tired of their constituents having to deal with all of this BS. And then you have those people, unfortunately, like Josh Hawley, who continues to peddle all of these fake lies and these narratives of Antifa has done this or does has done that. And it's, for me, I, I felt more hopeful yesterday than I have my entire three years being here in DC. We were at the, like, the the inside of everything when we first got here. And it was an incredibly dark time to be on the Hill when we came as interns. Fast forward three years now, I, like, I remember sitting on the floor during impeachment, crying when every Republican Senator stood up and said they, would not, they did not find him guilty of anything like crying. I was devastated. Right. And now you have members that are willing to come up and say, you know what, what, what we live through, um, on January 6th is enough for us to say he cannot run for office anymore. I mean, regardless of Twitter waiting to now to silence him. I mean, that could have been done a long time ago. Same for Facebook or any of these, um, or any of these other platforms that have waited until the insurrection to say, you know what, Maybe this guy is pretty bad. Maybe we should quiet him down and not, you know, let him continue to spew all this stuff to his base. What happened about doing that in December? You know, when you, he was going down to Georgia and saying all of this crazy stuff and people in Georgia were like, you know what? We don't have time for all of that. Even the Republicans. We ain't got time for all of that. Go find your business. We are gonna go ahead and let the Democrats do what they need to do because their party needs some restructuring at this point.
0: And I just want to put a quick plug in uh, because remember, we need two thirds of the senators in order to convict Donald Trump, which means that you need 17 Republicans yeah. to join with the 50 Democrats in order for this to happen. And the question is, do you have enough? Uh, you do have the Ted Cruz's. You do have the Josh Hollies, You have Lindsey Graham. You know, uh, Lindsey Graham took to cable news and said Biden should step up and tell Chuck Schumer, now the majority leader, to to, to back off on this stuff. And Lindsey Graham is now challenging Biden to take the, the, the high ground, um, as he's saying. We need unity, they're saying. We need unity, and that requires us to um, avoid convicting the former president. Uh, he's no longer in office. It doesn't make sense to go forward with an impeachment process. It's never been done before, they say. Um, in addition to that, I want to put in, plug in, these are uh, facts from the Pew Research Center. Nonpartisan, no political skew one way or the other, Uh, It says that 68% of the public does not want Trump to remain a major political figure in the future, 68%. Um, The flip side of that is that 64% of voters express a positive view or opinion of uh, President Biden's conduct since he won the November election. Uh, But Donald Trump left the White House with the lowest job approval of his presidency, 29%, uh, and increasingly negative ratings. Remember, Donald Trump is the first uh, one-term president to leave office, losing the Senate, losing the House, uh, since Herbert Hoover, 1932, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt won the first time, um, that was not a good year for Republicans, and you know the, the fact that it's been so long since something like this has happened. Uh, remember, tr- presidents are usually reelected. We've only had three since World War II that were one-termers, uh, and this third one just happened. Um, so this is very significant, um, and the fear or the the, the fear that this would be so divisive that the country will just be split more seems to not be on the side of the public according to the data, I mean, if you have 68% agreeing on something in these very polarized times, uh, I think that's saying something. Um, I think someone else is going to jump in.
4: I think, I think, uh, to your first point, I think, um, not doing anything to for what Lindsey Graham, what Jasmine was saying about Lindsey Graham, not wanting to do anything. It's kind of giving a slap on the wrist and saying, this is okay. This behavior is okay. And it's absolutely not okay. Regardless of how upset you are or angry you are, the way we do it here in America is you go to the polls. And I think especially as a teacher, a seventh grade teacher coming in and saying, that's not acceptable I have to tell my kids that, and they know that, I teach black and brown students, they know that that's not okay. And if it was them, something else would be different. And I think that we are the writers of history and we have to choose, are we going to allow and let everyone the world was watching, are we gonna allow this behavior to go untouched? Is everyone gonna get away with it? What does that say about democracy? What does that say about America? What does it say about our standards? Um, and then also going to back and saying to our our children, the next generation's coming up that, if you do something wrong, storm the Capitol building, that's okay, and that is not okay. So it's not even about, it's not even about President Trump. It's not about, um, it is about what he did say and it's about leadership and how, what a leader says and what they can do with their words, but it also just, it deals with, we cannot just allow something like so severe like this, just go untouched. If you do something and you, you have to pay the consequences for what you do, and it's just that.
0: And to your point, Cicely, uh, Claire McCaskill, who's now MSNBC contributor, who's, she was the former Senator of Missouri, used to have Josh Hawley's seat. She said, so if you don't convict him, if you don't impeach him, what you're saying is that in the in the waning days of your presidency, any future president down the road, you can do whatever. And not face any consequences, um, and I thought that that was really deep because if you have another Trump, say someone who's more ideological, you know, because Trump, regardless of how you feel, he was not an ideologue. You know, he wasn't. A, he wasn't like Ted Cruz. You know, he did. He was not someone who was a conviction politician. Uh, but if you do have someone who's calculating, uh, who thinks ten steps ahead, who who's smooth on television and says all the right things to to, to you know to win over the base. Um, are you saying that that kind of character can can get away with that and more, um, if they are a lame duck or a single duck, or you know, even if Trump was reelected, there's no other political consequence, you know, because he has no more elections to run. Are you saying that we should just leave this alone? I mean, the the the, the consequences, the repercussions of this, are deeper than what we're being led on to believe they are. And I and I'm I'm going to say this because a lot of people are saying, you know, people had good faith when they voted for Trump people had good faith. And my thing is, you know, and Omari, you know, good faith is a term of art we, we hear all the time, whether it be in commercial law, contracts, and with good faith, you need both parties to, to have um, some kind of sincere in, in, intent and understanding to come to a mutual agreement. Uh, but what you have here is a situation where you saw this, this was not coming out of the sky. You know, you, you had him coming down the escalator already, alienating a a huge demographic, calling them rapists, uh, murderers, Uh, some of them he thinks are good people, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims, Uh, insulted John McCain, bullied a a Gold Star family, Charlottesville happened, Um, very fine people on both sides, he called them. Uh, Then you want to add to just recent months, you know, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. My thing is, like, what did you think was going to happen after all of that? You know, none of those things had a check on them. Uh, we talked about it. People wrung their hands in the media, uh, but after a while, that bu- that bubbled down, and we moved on to the next thing. Um, and so, my thing is, you know, how can you have good faith, honestly, uh, looking at that and saying I'm going to bypass all of that because I benefit uh, economically. He's he's more in my economic interest, so I don't care if those folks who are affected by this are affected. Uh, my interests are protected, so therefore, I'm going. to, You know, how do you reconcile that? But any other thoughts?
4: Um,
5: I, I'm sorting through it. This, like, like uh, Jasmine said, this is so loaded, so I'm like sorting through. Um, but I was actually watching MSNBC yesterday, and I think that it's important even for us to be critical of of kind of both sides in the way that we're iding who the enemy is, right? Because um, on one of the shows, they were um, talking about the folks who would riot, who would, um, who would. Uh, done the the Capitol riot, and they referred to them as the white supremacists as if, like, we got them. They actually were all there on that day. Like, those are them. That's the enemy. We've identified them as that group. There's only, like, maybe 300 we counted. Once we get them, like, we're actually good. Like, racism is over. we solved it. And so I was, like, super critical of that because I was like, mm, like, we we have to also make sure that we're not making the mistake of, um, of. of Of course, that is obviously something that no one should have done. We should have had the security. It's a horrible act to commit, but it's not just that group, right? We have your your whites, your local white supremacists. They're also the people who are in your police force, right? They're the people who are also at your job. They're your neighbors. Some of them are your representatives. Some of them just got out of the White House as a president of the United States. And so we're, we have to be very careful in the way that we're iding it. Um, and accountability is going to be so important here. Um, like we we definitely can't just absolve Trump of, of, of whatever. And I'm also looking at folks like Mitch and whoever else who thinks that they can just suddenly take a, a back seat to all the havoc that they've reaped, right? Now you want to separate yourself. Ah, no, 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 get back in there. <laughs> you, We talking to you too, like, you guys, like, what do you think this is? Like, it has been years of nonsense, you know what I'm saying? And also I am just so fascinated to see what Uh, the future of the GOP will be. Because this is like no other. I was talking to to one of my friends and she was like, did Bush ever have like flags? I'm like, girl, no. nobody was doing this, you know, nobody was like, yeah, my Bush flags on my truck, like, no, people had American flags, so we're also dealing with this just complete shift where people are no longer patriots, they are Trump supporters, and that is scary, right, and we even got to see Trump turn on publications like Fox News, because you remember, um, you know, CNN, MSNBC, they were the fake news folks, right, really, whoever was disagreeing with him was who the fake news was but then when you see the GOP, right? They're they're clearly seeing Trump is not going to be the president again. So they've been backing him this whole time. But they remember that their actual loyalty is to the Republican Party, right? Not to Trump. And so now that Trump is no longer in office, we also have to deal with that. We also had a slew of folks at every level. It didn't even matter, like <laughs> Senate to to city council, running for like running on the platform of I will support Trump. City council, I'm like, are you going to fix the roads or not. Like, what are you talking about right now? Like, <laughs> literally, what are you saying to me? And so we have folks who are in office right now, right? I just finished working for a race in Alabama. The person who won that Senate seat ran on the platform of, I will support Trump. What do they do when Trump is no longer in office? Does Is, is that allegiance still there? It, you, you know, So these are questions that we have to ask because we're still dealing with the problem because most of these folks are still here, right? Trump was not a lone wolf in his efforts. He could not have done it alone. It was the support of other representatives. It was the support of Mitch McConnell. It was the support of the GOP, of news media, and of a very large following of people that we want so badly to ID as someone who's like, way off back living in the woods. No, they live right next to you. In fact, they probably own a company that you go to and and, and buy things from often. So we're dealing with multiple layers here that we are going to have to attack if we want to, to have not just a system that works for a couple of people, but that a system that is really working for everybody, we're gonna have to, have to really tackle this because I, I feel that we are really almost infected, right? With, with this and, and removing one thing may be a part of the problem, great, but there is so much more. Like you said, Michael, it's so much deeper um, and we, we have got to hold people accountable because if we do not, we are setting a huge precedent for how we are allowed to function in the future.
2: And,
0: and to that point, Camilla, Camilla, thank you for bringing that up, because remember, 25,000 troops were deployed just for this inauguration. And then there were reports saying that there are I think, a dozen uh, people in within the ranks of people who were supposed to be safeguarding the Capitol, safeguarding the, the dignitaries, who could have been uh, compromised because of text messages that the FBI found. Um, so we're in a situation where partisanship has seeped into almost every facet, not just news but now the military. Um, And I just want to talk a little bit about, since we're on this topic, because the report uh, just last night came out, Michael Flynn's brother, Michael Flynn, the same Michael Flynn that President Obama uh, reportedly advised Trump not to hire uh, during that transition period where Obama invited him to the White House two days later after the election, Um, and Trump went ahead and invited him anyway. During that December, between uh, the election of November 2016 and the inauguration January 20, 2017, uh, Flynn calls um, or, or communicates with Putin and says, don't worry about the the regulations that were imposed by the Obama administration. When we get in there, it's all going to be done with. That, was, that bubbled to the surface and all of a sudden he became the first Trump official to have to be fired. Um, but that's just a little bit of context in, ter- in terms of the brother. Now we have the brother, it was reported that the Pentagon uh, in terms of safeguards that should have been enacted to prevent or to mitigate the riots and the chaos that took place on January 6th at the Capitol building. Uh, he specifically refused to get more involved um, with, you know, ensuring in, in that that was mitigated. I want to get your thoughts on that,
3: panelists. Uh, I'll, I'll start off. Uh, I was actually listening to NPR yesterday, um, And for some reason, in conjunction with the celebratory narrative that they were covering the inauguration, they also decided to have some Trump supporters um, interviewed. And then in addition to that, they had a, um, she's the former Deputy Secretary of Counterterrorism at the Department of Homeland Security uh, and had resigned, they said, uh, this past fall. And some of the things that she was saying were very interesting to me, but essentially the department, her department, counterterrorism at the DHS, since as early as uh, this past summer, so back in, what was that, June or July, when the president, President Trump had said that he was starting to spew those those defraud the the elections going to be fraudulent that that he was you know he was already kind of laying those seeds across his supporters and his baseline um, from starting at that point the department had actually started to um, categorize his supporters as categorical terrorists and she said on the interview that Trump was not only was he denying like like seeing them and regulating them as actual terrorists categorically under whatever the rules are under DHS um, or at the DHS, he also was inciting them. And that's kind of led to her to leave. But what's interesting to me is that that's someone who was in in the department that, that works on counterterrorism. I mean, terrorist groups that most of us would think of like Al Qaeda and ISIS and, you know, far across our Atlantic Ocean and Pacific Ocean, right? But these are people in the office saying that there are Americans who the president benefits from that are operating in a way that categorically makes them terrorists. So it's not even, it's beyond just the stop calling them protesters; they're terrorists, tweets that we see, you know, in black Twitter and whatnot. This is actually in the government saying, no, these are actual terrorists, and nothing happened. And I'm very interested to see what comes out more Um, in the days and the months coming because it, from what it seemed like, there is a um, clear air amongst the Trump supporters and his base that this is, it's very air, hit, um, hail Hitler, to be frank with you. It's, they talk about Trump. This one woman was getting on there saying, no, this isn't over. Like we, we have to support Trump. He's done so much for us. We can't let him down. I mean, talking about him as if he was your, your spiritual leader, as if he was Jesus himself, you know? And it's, it was strange to me. Like they weren't talking about him as if he was a president. Like he was just some, you know, how, you know, how the black grandmas talk about, oh, Barack, he's so, you know, oh, I love me that Michelle, you know? No, it wasn't like, oh, that's my president, you know? We
5: never no. have lags. I just want to say we never have lags. <laughs> <laughs>
3: But I'm just, you know, and so, but they're talking about him like, like you would talk about uh, having a a vision from the great beyond, and and he as if he is really um, a movement. Which I will give him. Trump make America great again essentially was a movement. You have no one can deny that. I think you had in 2016 you had the movement of Trump and make America great again, and you had the movement of feel the burn in my opinion. I don't really think Hillary presented a movement to the country, but I think you see those two extremes of progressivism and democratic socialism and essentially this nationalist, fascist, you know, other extreme side. Um, and I think that's the real truth when we talk about polarization that's happening in America, that's what we're dealing with here. Um, not this moderate America that's trying to hold everything together, that kind of essentially won in 2020, I think moderate. Moderate, you know, moderate politics won in in 2020. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my biggest take is on as far as national security is concerned, is that I think the media and the government and and the people as well need to start recognizing Trump was more than just a president. We have to talk about this like we would talk about um, neoliberalism, or we would talk about you know, Nazism, like all of the different political theories and political movements that we learn about in our political science major courses and our history and our A- APSU history courses, that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at an ideology that is going to unfortunately surpass um, the, the, four, the four year term of President Trump. And essentially you're gonna to have to create policies that, uh, that, that mitigate, not only mitigate, but seek to eliminate that ideology. And I don't think that's been presented to us yet uniting America is not how you counter terrorism. That's just not how it works. And we, I think that's the biggest thing that Biden has probably not really publicly told us yet what he's going to do. And I get that because maybe he's not trying to scare up because going to Camilla's point, the reality is people have terrorists living in their homes. People have terrorists that are giving them paychecks. People have terrorists who are, they they are married to pair you know to like terrorists uh, this is it's different it's so so different and something that we have never even imagined um i at least i've never thought i would think of the country essentially going through such a terrible terrible time of a true war on terror and you know there's a lot you know that you said in in, in that segment uh
0: Omari. and and i think you know before i pivot back to charles flynn michael flynn's brother Um, You know, there was an individual who specializes in psychology and and political science and uh, he was guest appearing on MSNBC and he said, you know, when we're looking at the Trump uh, campaign, we have to understand that in this era now, you know, with with Trump, people have, you know, folks who are not religious, people who don't have their identity uh, in their church or in a, you know, community group uh, found it in a political part, a political movement, not a party, but a political movement with this Trump. Uh, and so, to your point, Camilla, I was saying the exact same thing. You're saying, you know, you never had flags. I mean, you know, you have campaign memorabilia. You know, all kinds of, you know, things to commemorate a presidential candidate, but you don't have it so intense uh, like you had it for these past four years. And I know we're spending a, a lot of time about the former president, uh, but I think it's important and necessary because we have to understand. What we just came out of, and what we almost got back four more years of. Um, because what we saw was that there was a group of people who came together. Um, and when we're talking about QAnon, uh, we're talking about the dark corners of the internet. Um, there are people, according to this gentleman, who won't necessarily act out on these beliefs but there's always gonna be that one person that does. And what we saw on the 6th of January was a culmination of all those one people that that would be in their respective groups. And they came together and, and this bold um, thing that ha- uh, came into fruition. And I always say, you know, the presidency of Donald Trump was a, an experiment. Uh, and I think it was an experiment uh, that was not a successful one for, for many obvious reasons. Uh, people get on the barato, they they get on the, the personality And it's so easy to wrap it up in a little bow and say, well, that was this man's doing, you know? But this man wouldn't have had legitimacy if it wasn't for the secret ballot box where people who were not going to be as overt as he was can go in there and secretly make their voice heard and enable this man who would do the dirty work for them. But I wanna pivot back to uh, General Flynn real quick. Um, His brother told the Washington Post that he was present for the January 6th meeting at which the Pentagon pushed back against the idea of deploying National uh, Guard troops to protect Congress from rampaging uh, uh, Donald Trump supporters. Flynn asserted that he was only there briefly in, in the meeting and he had to leave because he thought then um, Army Secretary um, uh, Ryan McCarthy was was about to take action. Um, he's, his quote is, "I believe the decision was imminent from the secretary, and I needed to be in my office to assist in ex- in executing the decision." Uh, he told the paper. Now this is a complete 180 because remember the Army reported beforehand that, you know, Michael Flynn's brother, General uh, Flynn, uh, did not, Charles Flynn did not have a role to play in the stalling of the deployment of troops. But now we see a complete reversal of that. Um, And I think that's very significant because uh, Professor Fred Cook, who was on the program about two weeks ago, had said there was an intentional move. Remember, the, the, Homeland security was not communicating with the department of transportation. Um, you had a situation where um, things were so in a position to purposely get out of control. <clears throat> and 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 so this really fits into that narrative he explained uh, two weeks ago. Um, I wanna get your thoughts on what happened. and And in light of the fact that the inauguration had to be so fortified, it almost looked like a
1: police state.
2: Uh, (laughs) Um, first of all, um, DC needs statehood. Okay. There's no way the mayor has to continuously go up the chain of command for something as simple as asking for assistance from the National Guard. When there is an, like a serious threat, a credible threat, we are seeing live I was in my home watching, you know what I'm saying, or whoever, everybody around the world was watching people break into the Capitol. Let's just be real for a second. The Capitol is one of the most hardest places to get into in D.C. Let's just be real. You come up the wrong street, you might catch yourself with some heat in your face. Let's just be real. But for me, I feel like it's frustrating when you see you see these things and you have, again, people like um, um, Josh Holly that saw that, that witnessed it. You have people like him that are working in that are working in um, the Department of um, Homeland Security and all of these other um, agencies that are like, you know what? Trump said, don't do anything or don't move. You just don't sit by and stand by and not let anything happen. It'll be fine. When in reality, people were getting killed inside. Like, I I still don't think people are understanding people died in the Capitol. And even to take a step back to what you were talking about earlier with um, the terrorists. during Charlottesville, these people were categorized as terrorists, domestic terrorists, right? when uh synagogues were being um attacked they were being considered terrorists these were white men who were doing these things going around holding those tiki torches saying jews will not replace us like come on now like i know i didn't want my parents going to home depot for a while after that i'm like don't go buy no tiki torches from them Uh uh-uh we we're gonna stay in the house no mosquitoes gonna bite us none of that but and like being seriously like so many of those people that worked in those those positions the, if the the mayor of DC had the authority to do it it would have been done like that she has to go through so much to try to get assistance trump still has a bill for that stupid parade that he tried to have that nobody attended you know what i'm saying like so she needs or dc just in general they need statehood you know what i'm saying like that's that's it that that's the tweet dc needs statehood that's it period
0: and you you know, that's a good point you made, Jasmine, because well, several points. But the point specifically about the, the security behind the building, because we know, uh, and anyone who's been to Capitol Hill knows that it's almost like going into into the airport. Yes. You know, through screening, you take everything off, you put it on the conveyor belt, you you stand in the middle, they take it a, a little mini x-ray. And I remember, you know, going back to you know the 23rd of January 2018, the lines were because we know that Dirksen, Russell, the Hart Building—it's kind of like a square. People yeah. were lining up all around that square in the cold winter, yeah. just in because you had to each one by one go through the same process.
5: Yeah.
0: Uh, and it was so fortified that if someone wanted to get out of control, that that just was not going to happen. Um, and to your point with the security, uh, Professor Cook also mentioned—you know—remember Mike Pence was in the building. And a lot of, I don't know, this was stressed a lot. I don't think it has been, but you have the executive branch and Mike Pence, who's the vice, who was the vice president, and the legislative branch, the Senate and the Congress ratifying the, the, or certifying the electoral count votes uh, in the same building. And usually when you have a situation like that, it's very fortified. There's, there's a lot of security. Remember, the State of the Union is the one event where all three branches of government are under the same roof. And there's a designated survivor um in this situation you had two branches under the same roof and things got out of control and i think the only reason why uh, the the uh, <clears throat> ultimately uh, secret service and national guard were deployed was because mike pence uh, was in jeopardy you know and and the vice president elect remember kamala harris was still the junior senator of california at the time she didn't yet resign uh, but i want to pivot a little bit more as time is getting away from us and it seems like it, it went by so quickly Um, Back to um, the the Census Bureau director's resignation. Um, The the Census Bureau director, Stephen Dillingham, resigned this past Monday uh, as the director of the Census Bureau. Um, This was bringing an early end uh, to his tumultuous tenure that culminated this month, uh, and he charged that the position was becoming too politicized. Um, He notified the White House that he would leave the agency on Wednesday, which is the day that president, President-elect Biden became President Biden, the 46th president, um, under federal law, uh, uh, his term was supposed to end uh, in December of this year. <clears throat> he took over the agency in 2019, and he was nominated by President Trump, who cast himself as a seasoned statistical expert uh, who was committed to upholding the Census Bureau's historically nonpartisan work. Um, this is significant uh, because, remember, a lot of times people forget 2020 was a census year. Um, he was tasked to oversee uh, the 2020 census. Um, And the work that he was trying to do was overshadowed by the Trump administration's year-long effort to use the Bureau's population tallies to change the rules for reappropriating the House of Representatives and drawing political districts nationwide. Um, This is significant because we know that this was a very razor thin election. Um, Even in Georgia, when you go by, you know, the counties, Fulton County, uh, you go to Henry County, Clayton County. Um, those counties were really won by, you know, I guess when you get close to the metropolitan area, there was a large margin. But when you look at the uh, moderate counties, I mean, this was a very slim, slim victory. Um, and remember, he only needed 11,000 plus votes. That's what he told Raffensberger. That's all I need. Um, but this is significant because you have someone jumping ship um, because he says that his, his role is so politicized. Uh, but when you look at the reason, uh, the administration is using the, trying to use the 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 the, the calculations from the from the bureau um, <clears throat> to try to manipulate
1: it to its advantage uh, electorally. I want to get your thoughts on that.
0: Don't all jump in at once, but <laughs> just to add a little bit more to, to 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 the context here. Remember, Section Five of the Voting Rights Act is another layer um, because that now give states free reign to make any changes to their voting laws. So I, I'm I'm thinking that, you know, in terms of, we talked about it earlier, what, what should the Democrats' first priority be? I think, you know, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act needs to be number one, uh, because, you know, any kind of viability for the Democrats can have going forward electorally has to be through a change in the voting uh, regulations. Um, you have a situation where you can have states like Georgia say, okay, well, Stacey Abrams has whipped up enough votes. Let's go ahead and make a few changes here and there. We saw 2018. Um, we've seen situations where elections were won uh, by technical errors and, and, and things that really deterred folks from voting, p- people who didn't have ID law, um, voter IDs, um, you know, all kinds of different uh, ways in which we can reduce and suppress the amount of people who can cast a ballot. I want to get your thoughts.
3: Yeah, well I'll I'll add in real quick my 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 first thought is just as far as Georgia is concerned, I think we have seen the potential of the black vote. We've seen what the black vote truly should be valued as. Um, or really, I don't think it can be valued. I think it is invaluable, um, especially to the Democratic Party. For any party. Um, if the Republicans had enough sense to know that there are plenty of Black conservatives in the Black community, and they got their stuff together, I know for a fact they could get a whole bunch of um, their own GOP Black vote, but they haven't done that yet. Um, but so for the Democrats right now, I think when you talk about presenting different legislation like the John Lewis Voting um, John Lewis Voter Rights Act um, and or bill, and then you have um, different reorganizing and electioneering um, bills and proposals that have come up. I think at first really it's a party thing. I'm interested to see what the new chair and vice chair will do um, now that they're in their positions and especially uh, mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottom, who uh, is uh, obviously a, a daughter of Atlanta and a daughter of Georgia. Who I think can be able to bring a really good perspective on what it's like to um, have a successful model of of creating a good uh, voter and organized voter organizing strategy in southern red states. Um, But I think for me, I would say, I think it's more of on the political party right now um, and the party establishment to really figure out kind of how they're gonna organize. At the end of the day, that's the other thing I wanna point out from 2020 organizing wins, organizing, community organizing. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a community, former community organizer, so I'm biased, but it does, it works. And we saw that in 2020. So we can pass all these bills, but it's the organizers that get people to understand what the bills are doing, why they're important. It's the organizers who get the people out there to vote on the candidates and the measures and the, the, the reordinances and all those other types of things
2: um my boss is also a vice chair so shout out to Senator Duckworth. Look, look.
0: <laughs> so I wanted, you know, as time is coming to a close, um uh, President Biden's inaugural speech yesterday. Uh the the theme, you know, was just seeping with unity. Um you know, that was the message she was hitting home uh very hard. Um you know, I was thinking it didn't make much sense to make it an ideological speech. Um because that would have probably been tone deaf, you know. Um, this was a very narrowly uh, fought election, and you know the historian Jonathan Meacham said, "Very close elections create consequential presidencies." And when he said that, I thought about 1960. I thought about Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Um, that was a very close election, so much so that the irregularities in the election that were boiling down to uh, records of folks uh, who were deceased being on voter rolls. Um, and also, you know, the, the work of mob bosses in Chicago. Um, Nixon had an opportunity to challenge that, and he said, "For the good of the country, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the president-elect continue to be the president-elect. I'm going to get behind him. I'm going to show up to the inauguration. I'm going to go forward." Remember, Kennedy faced the Cuban missile crisis. Um, his assassination really opened the door for the civil rights uh, movement to take flight because that was that was political capital given to Lyndon Johnson to, to to whip up votes for a lot of these pieces of legislation that otherwise would not have been passed. Um, I think about elections like 2000, uh, Al Gore, George W. Bush. Remember, just within a year uh, of, you know, the inauguration of George W. Bush, uh, September 11th happened, and all of a sudden we're in op- Operation uh, Freedom, uh, troops being deployed in Iraq, Uh, not, there's no definite time in which they're said to return, Um, you know, and and so we see that close elections drew have consequences. And I think this one, this this election is going to be a very consequential, if not the most consequential in American history. Uh, But I want to get your thoughts, you know, but before I do, I want to pull up some quotes from the Biden um, inaugural speech. Remember, inauguration speeches usually go down uh, in history for a lot of, you know, positive reasons. Uh, President Kennedy uh, challenged the country to ask not uh, what the country can do for them, but what they can do for the country. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, tried to instill with the American people um, a sense of um, conservatism uh, in terms of fiscal conservative, cons- conservatism. Um, George W. Bush promised to be a uniter, not a divider. Um, Bill Clinton promised to bring us into a new frontier with the 21st century, um, and so President Obama, even you know, remember he—I remember when he came to office. There's a lot of challenges. Osama bin Laden was still alive. Um, the financial crisis had gripped the nation. The housing bubble burst, um, and Lehman Brothers was the first domino of many to, to to really set off the trend. But he said, "We will defeat Osama bin Laden. We will come out of this." Um, and so President Biden uniquely was put in this position to speak. Um, And I think he made, he to the occasion. He said, today in this January day, my whole soul is in this, uh, beginning America, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. Um, He said, the American story depends not in any one of us, not on some of us, but on all of us, on we, the people who seek a more perfect union. Uh, And this, this is a great nation. We are good people. And over the centuries, through storm and strife and peace and in war, we come so far, uh, but we have so far to go. If I can get your thoughts, panelists, on the inauguration speech, um, do you think he struck the right chord? Do you think he should have actually been more heavy on the policies? Um, what are your thoughts?
1: I think that uh, we are in a time where people want answers and they want action, like Camilla said earlier, uh, but also we need to begin to heal as a country, right? And the first step of that healing comes from acknowledging that we have a severe problem. And I think that he struck the right tone with this uh, inauguration speech, uh, being that he didn't try to do the flowery language, or he didn't try to cover up the inequalities with policy recommendations. He said, this is what's going on. This is where we are as a country. And he's calling on good people and and the good nature and the the good faith that we mentioned earlier in the podcast about you know, folks on both sides saying, "Hey, look, this is where we're at, and I need you to band with me to help reconcile our country." You know, he understood before he took office that we were, he was going to be inheriting a presidency that is full of you know, health uh, uh, health challenges, economic challenges, national challenges, and even things that we have yet to talk about you know, in depth inter- internationally, right? Because we lost a whole lot of friendships that were strained throughout the Trump presidency um, with our international partners and longtime friends um, with the rise of the nationalism that we saw uh, during the Trump presidency. But I think that this inauguration speech and the inauguration itself struck a chord of symbolism and unity and reunification that we need to get to because we can't take for granted that Trump got the second highest number of votes ever in American history. Second only to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. You know, when you think about that, over 75 million people said Trump is our guy. You know what I mean? Like, And that that's a real reconciliation that we need to have as a country. And I think going all the way back for a full circle moment when you said in the beginning about this is going to be the time of the moderate, well, it is. We have a very slim majority. We actually lost Democratic seats in the House during the re-election. Um, we just got, you know, a 50-50 split, uh, which really isn't, you know, you, you have, it. what I'm getting to is that there needs to be bipartisanship, and this is a real opportunity for that to happen in a way where we can change the narrative of it's not us versus them, but it's a we situation. And I think that that's the, 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 the type of, leadership that we're seeing, even with things like the executive order that uh, Joe Biden did about examining equity amongst all the agencies, right? You know, looking at all of our programs and how federal dollars are spent across, not just rural America, not just urban America, not just uh, communities of color, not just white communities, but how are we as a people doing and how are we providing resources to all people, regardless of, you know, what state you're from and what party you're in. I think that uh, at a larger level and even on the micro level, uh, we have to come into some sort of reconciliation with ourselves uh, and realize that, you know, it's like Camilla said the terrorists that we're talking about weren't just the ones that stormed the Capitol, but they're the people that are in our everyday society. So, how do you rectify that? And how do we acknowledge that in a way that charges us to move forward together? I'm not saying that you need to go love on them and they need to become your best friends but you need to understand that we have to all coexist together. And how do we do that in a way that doesn't infringe upon my rights, but also doesn't trample on your liberties.
2: And even to just add on what um, you just said, um, even more specifically, uh, Joe Biden has been in politics for decades. Let, let's just be real. He he was like the, the driving force behind getting some of Obama's most important legislation pushed through by, you know, bipartisan efforts, people, Republicans, they trust Joe Biden, they know who he is, and they know the work that he's done, right? So if there's any time, I think this is the time for Republicans to kind of get out of that funk that they've been in to say, you know what, let's get back to helping the people, right? Because we, I mean, even today, hearing the fact that Republicans are upset about his uh, $1.9 trillion um, bill proposal to try to get money into the pockets of everyday Americans, they're like, oh, you're adding to the deficit. Did Trump just not add have a tax credit added to some of the most wealthiest people in this country? You can't try to um, try to be watching the the deficit now when the wealthiest among us are like sitting back eating good and people's grandmothers are struggling to buy insulin. Like there needs to be, like Anthony said, a, a moment where we come together and be real about some stuff. Yes, there was this whole small second during killing Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, where white America was like, we stand with you guys, wanna understand. But then something else happened, they're like, okay, well we have to deal with, no, how do we get to a place where we can have these uncomfortable conversations and we be held accountable? And I feel like the Biden administration is gonna have to do some of that to get a lot of these um, members to play ball. Because you have people like Ted Cruz or even the the um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who went on record by saying that, you know, that this isn't the right thing. But now he's saying that, well, we shouldn't even think about impeachment anymore because he's not in office or Lindsey Graham. Who's saying, you know what? Trump is no longer in office, but called him out on the Senate floor. You can't have it both ways. You have to. You have to do what's right. And the American people are tired of waiting on these people to do what's right. And they're going to take things into their own hands. So um, I'm hoping that um, President Biden can do what he can um, to be able to mend those broken relationships um, and get back to the work of the people.
0: And I like the point you brought out, Jasmine, before I pivot to Camilla, because I said to myself, 12.01 p.m., January 20th, 2021 is gonna be the time everyone's gonna, all the Republicans are gonna become fiscal conservatives again. Uh, because we know that during the past four years, the deficit has increased. I heard um, some folks, uh, uh, friends of mine who are Republican, they, or some of them who consider themselves libertarian say, during the 2020 Democratic primary, I'm not hearing anyone talk about the deficit. I'm not hearing anyone talk about the debt ceiling. Mark Sanford ran, uh, he that was very short-lived. Um, to challenge Trump. you know, Trump didn't really have a serious challenger, but the Republicans really didn't uh, nail him on that. You know, They didn't really hold him to the, the fire on being a fiscal conservative for four years. And so we're going to see, I think, a lot of uh, hypocrisy, to, to put it just bluntly, uh, on a lot of these proposals. Remember, President Biden said, these uh, actions that I'm proposing or going to be proposing in the near future to combat the COVID-19 virus, they're not going to be cheap. Uh, because it's not a cheap this has already cost us over 400 lives uh we should be expending if, if we're not spending our capital on this then what are we saving it for uh camilla
5: um <laughs> yeah it's funny um when when joe biden gave his inaugural speech and he went up there and and was like yeah my whole soul soul is, is in this i don't know about you guys but I was kind of like, yeah, buddy. I hope so, <laughs> you know. I freaking hope so. Um, and and I, I'm really glad that that Jasmine brought up um, this, the the racial injustice that we have always faced historically, right? But that his I, we, 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 during this time period, we kept saying that it was coming to a head. I'm like, just cause you found out about it, doesn't mean it's coming to a head, but okay. Um, and so we're also in this space where when the Republican party isn't gaslighting the black community and telling them that what they're going through isn't, isn't uh, actually happening while also somehow wrapping that messaging inside of, but my condolences though, <laughs> then the Democrats are coming in <laughs> telling us, like, oh yeah, no, we agree with you, we agree with you, but then in the statements they put out, the, 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 we're so sorry for what happened is like three sentences and the rest of the report is about how you need to stop looting and rioting and da 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 da, da. and it's just really, really interesting, and so I think that we're in a very interesting place, and we know that with, um, that with the inheritance of the presidency, right, you're also inheriting all of the world's problems, and they are, we are expecting you to figure them out, right, um, but the American people have 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 taken in, I think, a very clear set of messaging throughout the last four years, and especially like like we said earlier, uh, throughout the last year, that says, in the event in a, of a pandemic, will my government <laughs> make sure that I don't die? No. Mm, okay wow. And then we talk about like these racial justice, um, these racial justice issues. And like we said, we're either being gaslighted or we're being, you know, sort of, uh, I don't even know what the word is like a pat. Oh, thank you for using your voice. We're so glad you did that. Also, shh, also keep it peaceful. Just like your guy said, I'm okay. Remember? Yeah. So and we're, 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 I feel like they have a very, very, uh, Unique sort of, uh, you know, set of tasks on their hands, (laughs) um, that, that say that, that we're gonna have to do better because there's, there is no sweeping this under the rug. There is no pretending that we didn't experience whatever we did in the last, um, in the last, uh, you know, four years, last year. And for many people, I think that it's a, we have to acknowledge also the huge privilege it is to be able to say on inauguration day, whew, we did it, folks, (laughs) as if there aren't So many people who are still either homeless, facing eviction, you know, uh, still trying to figure out how they're going to feed their kids, still have the anxiety of knowing that they have to go into work and they have, you know, a pre-existing condition or whatever it is, figuring out childcare. You guys know, like, like we said earlier, like my background is social work. There are parents who have to still go to work whose kids have to be home, and social workers will take them. We have this system who is that is so set on punishing the poor, right? That there are so many people who did not get to experience that same, oh, heavy burden lifted off of my shoulders that so many privileged people have. And so we also have that, right? Real American people, no matter party party lines, no matter personal ideology, who are suffering, right? And so, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I did love the speech, but I think um, we made it, I think it was Anthony who had said, like, you know, people are waiting for action. Like, yeah, I'm really glad. Like, this is a great speech, Joseph, but like, rent is due in 10 days. <laughs> you know, like, Thank you so much for the hope. Now let's get to it, buddy, because people are really suffering. So I feel like we 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 have a lot in our hands and we will be absolutely uh, just, it would be very unfortunate for us to think that this has ended. We have made it, we have figured it out um, because we have real work to do.
0: Thank you for that. And to that point, my landlord called me just before this uh, to say my rent is due but i want to go ahead and put a plug in because i thought this speech was practical um i think that you know a lot of times you know we look at inauguration speeches and we think about what the one liner would be you know what would future generations think of when they think of that presidential inaugural address but i think this one was it had to be about how we're going to get things done uh because we know that after the ceremonies after the formalities after the symbolism uh, Mitch McConnell is still going to remain Mitch McConnell. We know that Lindsey Graham is going to remain Lindsey Graham. We know that the obstruction that we saw for eight years will return. Right. Um, so I think in a sense, it allowed the public to be on notice that, Hey, my, my number one priority is reaching across the aisle. And you're going to see me doing that in a very active public way. I thought that was a smart move on Biden's part because now it's the, it's them on defense. Now, when, when you think about it, because he's already in the public view in within the first 24 hours of his presidency, signing executive orders, rolling up his sleeves, getting to action, talking about COVID, having Anthony Fauci on the you know, press secretary's uh podium, uh speaking to the public. You know, remember the last time we even had Fauci at that in that room, I think people were still walking around outside without masks because the public wasn't really appreciating the depth of how serious this pandemic was. But I want to, you know, as we're coming to a close, um, this is a book I've been reading. Promise Me, ba- Promise Me Dad, uh, written by Joe Biden, came out in 2017. And in, chap- in the final chapter, page 241, uh, he's talking about how he was exploring a candidacy in 2016. Um, he was wavering between whether he should, whether he shouldn't. He was listening to his close friends and confidants, family members. Uh, page 241, he says, Bill Bradley. Remember, Bill, Bill Bradley gave Al Gore a run for his money in 2000. Uh, Bill Bradley called again when I got back from California. This was my time, he insisted. He told me about a woman he'd overheard at a coffee shop saying, I ought to run. Joe Biden ought to run. And I do, I do not want to see him attacked. She had said to a friend, he has been through so much. Joe, sometimes demand meets the moment. My old colleague told me, tragedy has bonded you to the public. And you can build on that. Joe, this is your moment. Um, You'll take the entire country with you if you stand up. He told me he wasn't trying to pressure me, that I should take my time and be sure I was ready for this. It wasn't too late, he said. If that woman in the coffee shop was right, you're a special case. Um, He said, I knew it was going to be an uphill race against Hillary Clinton. I thought I could win. It had to have been very tough for her to make the decision to run because she knew her detractors would come after her, and they did. Her numbers in the face of relentless attacks by Republicans and critical... Press coverage were uh, declining. Uh, Bernie Sanders was polling eleven points ahead of her in New Hampshire, and it closed a, a, to a tie in Iowa. Uh, he goes on to talk about, you know, the, AF- the AFL-CIO holding off their endorsement because they're waiting for him to jump in the race and the firefighters union. Uh, but it really goes to show you how Joe Biden really calculates things a uh, uh, 360 degree angle before he jumps into anything. And I think with this, you know, the quote I think someone brought it up. He also reiterated in this book. He said, "No one should run for the presidency unless their whole soul is into this." And I think he emphasized that in the inauguration speech. And I think, you know, people are going to be, I think, surprised, positively surprised, um, at the aggressive approach he's going to take to the presidency. Remember, his a huge part of the job is restoring the institutions, restoring the norms. Um, but I want to close off by getting your takes on what your favorite part of the inauguration ceremony was. Anyone can start.
2: I'm just gonna say Michelle Obama, that's it,
4: okay? I'm gone. please. Um, I would say, um, I was showing my students in class. Uh, I think the, excuse me, Kamala, I've been pronouncing her name so many times. Kamala, seeing her um, take get sworn in, um, to be able to, I was young when I witnessed President Obama uh, but be able to see that again and to know and to show black and brown students that could be you and then even going further than that my students name, changing their names on zoom to president elect whatever and their little and to see them witness that firsthand was was so beautiful brought tears to my eyes but I did not shed a one <laughs> in front of my kids um, i think oh go ahead I'm,
1: See, you You talking, but you're muted. Okay. Um, I think there were so many beautiful moments there. Um, Kamala, uh, a man boy, um, she did a fantastic job. But I think for me, I think for moving forward, the, the moment that I think was one of the most consequential was when Pence actually showed up to the inauguration. And it was uh, a little bit like, he had started to stand up on his own, but also he understood that it was more than just that one moment, and that the transfer of power uh, was more consequential than his. I mean, he clearly did not, you know, want to be there, but like he understood that his duty to the role and to the country was more consequential than him leaving on Marine One and then going to a campaign rally at Joint Air Force, Andrews Air Force Base and then going to Florida. But you know, I think that that was for the country and for you know top level Republicans you know who kind of was in his camp, he kind of brought them to like, okay, this is something we, we can get back to being normal again.
2: Um, my favorite part um, was
1: not Michelle.
2: I, it was Michelle in all of the beautiful fashions. they were they were serving up everything they, they were supposed to. Um, but honestly, as a black woman, of course, my favorite part, and as an HBCU graduate, had to be Kamala Harris um, taking her oath of office from uh, Thurgood Marshall's Bible. So many people have continuously talked down about the HBCU education and how HBCUs don't prepare you for the real world. And I feel like, con- like constantly over the last several years, we have seen that HBCUs prepare you for everything that the real world has to offer. Law school, where, whether you're going to an HBCU school, whatever it looks like, HBCUs get the job done. They prepare you for any type of adversity there is, whether you're dealing with so, like social workers, whatever that is, HBCUs are getting you prepared to get the job done. And for me as a black woman and as a woman of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, my heart was so full to witness that moment. I thought back to me sitting on the Senate floor and thinking about how so many people are having to live under terror under President Trump. And now we are having this fresh start and you can breathe again. Like even to what Mike was saying about um, Biden being calculated, that wasn't even about Biden. That was God's timing. God said, you know what? I don't want you to run right now. I have other plans for you. I have things that this country needs to go through right now in order for them to be able to appreciate, appreciate you when you run. You know what I'm saying? And for you to be able to bring a black woman with you to make change in this country. So that's what I appreciated. And that's what I took from it. And I was just in awe, awe yesterday about just what we're, what we're getting ready to see and what little black and brown girls and boys are going to be able to tell their children about our, what our grandparents are even able to see right now. In their lifetime they were able to see a black president and now a black woman as vice president. The same grandparents that were out here um marching to be able to vote. The same grandparents that were out here seeing their siblings get lynched or you know friends go through whatever they went through or seeing the things that happened to Emmett Till. These are the people that are seeing everything that they worked hard for come into fruition. So that was my favorite part. I'm
1: gonna say one more thing and then I'm gonna shut up. The most powerful woman ever in, a co- in our history of our country is a black woman, and I'm gonna leave it alone.
4: Um, I
5: think my favorite part uh, of this whole thing was just kind of like the general sense of hope. <laughs> I think I hadn't felt that in like kind of a long time, you know, and even at the beginning of the inauguration, I think I was like, like I said earlier, you know, I, like many Americans, I think we're erring on the side of caution, right? Like, we're just gonna see. Um, But I, I was, they, they're also really smart in making it so long, because I feel like at the beginning, I was like, ready to be mad, but towards the end, I was like, this land is your land, like, you know. But um Yeah, I think that just the, the, their ability to somehow restore, uh a, uh, even just the smallest sense of hope um, in a people who have been as a collective um, going through so much, right? There are just so many people who are genuinely, truly suffering. I think that that is just, um, it, it, it felt good to finally feel like, wow, okay, maybe there is hope. Maybe we can, we can really get something done. That and then um, one of these news stations called Trump a twice impeached Florida resident. And <laughs> I was like, yes, like dragon. <laughs> okay, that's it.
3: Uh um yeah, I think it's really hard to say one moment from yesterday. Um, I too would probably say the general sense of hope, but I would add um the reality of peace and and the 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 representation the visualization of what a democracy looks like what true diversity what true community looks like when amanda gorman got on that stage and she said the line um that basically referenced uh, a black a little black skinny black girl who was the descendant of a slave now able to um, imagine herself as the president of the United States while speaking and reciting for one. That line alone, to me, was—I mean, I—I I got emotional because to think about just how diverse that state is. I mean, to 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 think of the moment where Kamala Harris and um excuse me, Vice Madam Vice President Kamala Harris—I want to make sure that title. Is, is always recorded when it can be. Um, fist pumps, president, former president, uh, President Obama. That to me was like, whoa, like, whoa, like what? Like, that's just huge. And then to see um, Mina Harris's husband in the Dior's. And then you got Biden over here in his, I'm not Biden, Bernie in his mittens. It's just like we, and even, and I will give it to you. Even having turtleneck Mitch McConnell in the corner with Ted Cruz looking over th- with them, you know, that th- that to me is America. I I I as a child I used to struggle with the idea of, especially growing up around a lot of white people, I used to struggle with the idea of saying, uh, you know, of I, I could never relate to that that patriotism, you know, especially back in the Bush era. You know, we they like we said earlier, they didn't have flags or whatnot, but 9-11 brought a lot out for for specifically some white Americans about patriotism and this idea of America and who rah 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 that I, I don't think I really could have related with as a black boy. And I stand here now as someone just in the past few years and especially really in this past year for some reason, maybe it's just the crazy of 2020, but feeling like a truly proud American and feeling like we are getting to a point where um, America looks like so much more. When I say, what is America? I, can, I feel confident that I can go to another country and the first thing they're gonna show me isn't gonna be a picture of some old white man. You know what I mean? For some people, America is Michelle Obama and her bangs and her and her purple you know outfit and the belt and the coat that is America for some people right for some people in other countries when they say when you know what is America it's Jennifer Lopez singing in her all white and busting out in, you know let's get loud like it's it's amazing to hear and see that America starts to look to me like the people that actually built America
0: and I want to just go ahead and share my favorite Moment of the uh, inauguration. It wasn't during the day. It was actually during the concert, and that was when former presidents Bush and Clinton and Obama each spoke about the continuity of government, uh, because it was more than just symbolic. Um, there were a lot of symbols, important ones that we all discussed. But I think in that, it was tangible. We 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 never really saw President Trump invite the former presidents over to the Oval Office to give him advice. Uh, there was no reports of him calling former President Obama on how to deal with North Korea or how to deal with Russia or how to, you know, deal with the uh, economic crisis that we're currently facing. Um, there was no photo with the 45th president and the former presidents. Um, but what this showed me was that there's gonna be a tangible change and that uh, President Biden faces multiple challenges. Uh, so did President Obama. Uh, president Clinton came in during the time of recession. President Bush experienced war on terror, uh, the housing bubble crashed at the end of his tenure, um, the economic crisis. Um, remember, during the early years of his presidency, the Enron scandal happened. Um, so I have hoped that he's now going to be re- leaning on the advice and the wisdom of former chief executives who's fa- who have faced serious challenges and is going to be emulated in the policies and the, and the executive uh, actions that he's going to take in the next four years. Um, Thank you all for joining the political mic. This was an amazing 26th episode. Um, we're currently in the 21st day of the, tw- of the 21st year of the 21st century. Um, and there's so much to look forward to at this moment. Um, while there are folks who are saying that there needs to be unity, uh, Senator Rand Paul, for instance, is warning that one third of Republicans could actually leave the party of G- if GOP senators back impeachment, um, you know, you also have, on the flip side, the fact that people are scared to part uh, to to convict someone who's actually giving pardons to folks like Michael Flynn, who's proven himself time and time again to be someone unworthy of such a an honor. Um, you also have him, you know, in his last day part giving over a hundred day. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, over a hundred pardons. Um, but you have hope in that there could be tangible, concrete solutions around gun control. Remember, that was the one thing President Obama said was his failure uh, in in during his eight years, the, the failure to get gun control passed in the wake of Sandy Hook Elementary uh, shooting. I think the fact that he designated Biden as the head of the gun control task force that he uh, assembled gives me hope that now President Biden will make that at the top of his agenda, uh, reuniting with the World Health, uh, Health Organization, you know, uh, during this pandemic, when over four hundred thousand of our fellow citizens have died, um, so many folks, you know, it's hard not to know someone who has it, or know someone or have someone who's been affected by this in some way, or shape, or form. Um, you know, I think we have so much to be hopeful for in the next four years, but we have to stay engaged. Uh, it doesn't end with the election. It doesn't end with the inauguration. Uh, it doesn't end with a symbolic concert. Uh, it, it is an ongoing struggle, and and President Obama had made this uh, uh, this mention. You know, politics is not a spectator sport; it requires all hands on deck. So now, you know, we are going to hold the new president accountable. We are going to hold the new administration, new administration accountable. We're going to stay informed. We're going to refrain from s- sketchy news sources uh, that are designed to sow doubt in the political process and and, and create more friction between those who are on the other side of the aisle. Um, all of that is part of being a responsible citizen. But I want to thank each of you. This was an amazing edition of The Political Mic. I'm looking forward to having each of you back on if you're willing, if you're able. Um, very dynamic, uh, very engaging group of, of, of individuals, and very accomplished. With that being said, thank you, all so, thank you all so much again. And that concludes the 26th edition of The Political Mic.